flamethrowers. Flamethrowers, my friends, I'm so happy to be talking to Canadian Women's National Soccer Team stalwart, literally the person responsible for our bronze medal win in 2002, her feet rather. We're queuing up here, edge of the area, Matheson back in. Get the shot through, Schmidt blocked off, surely Canada oh. have gone and won it right at the death here and the goal scorer is Diana Matheson, 28 years of age. Diana Her Matheson, recently retired, had been with the Canadian Women's Programme since 2003, professional player in the NWSL. She is a fan of Peaches at the moment. Diana is, among other things, an incredible advocate. She was part of the first Canadian Women's National Team Union, which is incredibly important, and an outspoken advocate of all things wonderful. Welcome, Diana. Hi, Shireen. Thanks for having me. Hi, Burn It All Down crew. Um, she also hails from Oakville, Ontario, which is an important part of the conversation we'll get into later because I live not too far from there, and she is revered and loved as she should be, and the cardboard cutout there was the most photographed cardboard cutout in club history and still remains that way. I think it's gone now. It was, but I want to know where it is because I want it. So when COVID opens everything up again, I may try to go steal it. I hope nobody's listening to this. You should reach out to the club. Maybe they know. It had a good run, though. I think it was up for about 12 years, so I can't complain. Yeah, I know, but I want I want it in my house. Like, I wanted it by my desk. Um, so how are you doing? I'm good. I'm um I'm a bit tired. I'm a bit busy. I I very wisely went straight from retirement into watching these incredible Olympics and doing a bit of media for them, all the while prepping for an EMBA course at the Smith School of Business, which I just started last week. And the first two weeks are very intense. And I I'm not sure my brain's working. So this should be a good podcast. It's, it'll be fantastic. And I know that you're in grad school and that's like amazing and very, very difficult because an MBA is no joke. And you have advocated also strongly. And I said in the intro for all things that are good. But what I mean by that is expanding women's soccer for a domestic league. Can you tell us a little bit about is this part of your journey to try to get that? Yeah, absolutely. It is. And I was yes, I want to be in the future kind of on that side of the game in in behind the scenes. I've never had the, the coaching bug bite me, but I would love to help build something in Canada, run something in Canada. So absolutely, I knew I had to get a bit more business background in that. And then this opportunity at the Smith School of Business, which is an incredible school, came about through game plan. So a COC has uh, kind of a, a helpful program for athletes heading towards retirement called game plan. And, and there's a few scholarships available through that. So this, I was very fortunate to, to get into the program that way. So hats off to Game Plan and the COC for doing that because that's a really good resource for athletes looking to do the next thing. It's, it's super interesting to take these classes now too because I can have everything I'm learning, I can directly apply to, oh, we can use this for that. We can use this for that. So it's, a, <laughs> it's perfect timing really. And literally it started the day after Canada won their gold medal. So the timing was ridiculous. Like I couldn't say no to the opportunity and, and it's, yeah, I'm very lucky that that fell into my lap. I love that we're talking about this now, but I do want to back up a little bit and go back to your storied career, which is incredible. I watch part of my self-care dossier is actually rewatching your goal in 2012, which is a very fraught Olympics for me personally. One of my traumas in sport was from the particular game and you were you were there. You were actually there. So, yes, I'm making this about me because I was sad and mad for a long time. But Diana. Mm -hmm. 
when you started playing soccer, did you know always, and when you went, when you played at elite levels, did you know that you had to keep contributing to the future? Is that something you actively thought of as a young player as you progressed? No, I think that's something you get as you, as you get older. I think when you're a young player, you're excited to be there. And, and I think you say things like, oh, it's about leaving a legacy, but I don't think you, you get it as much as you get a bit older in your career and you see what's out there and you, and you see the impact that you can have. Um, so no, I didn't really, didn't really think about any of that stuff. I've kind of just made it up as I've gone. Like when I first made, (laughs) when I was first, you know, in high school, I didn't really dream of being in the Olympics. Like it wasn't, wasn't on TV yet for me to dream about. I wasn't on the national team yet. And then got on the national team and I was like, oh, yeah, we could go to the Olympics. And then once we were like going to the Olympics, we were like, oh, yeah, no, we could win a medal here. And then like, <laughs> so I've been, I think one of my strengths is just recognizing good opportunities when they're coming my way and just taking fully advantage of them when they happen. Not, not so much planning going on. So this I've written a lot about as an outsider and observer of the way the team cohesion is. And I interviewed you and Janine Becky last year for uh, the contributions you were making for the Conquer COVID-19 uh, campaign. And Janine spoke about the culture of the team that the young ones come into, and you were part of really building that program. Was that there for you, that guidance, that leadership, that understanding, and quite frankly, an anti-oppression sort of understanding of things, which we grow and we all unlearn. Um, but was that there when you got to the team, to the national team? I think probably the main shift in culture that made us put more thought and awareness into our culture came with John Herdman. Mm -hmm. His detailed approach put more intent behind everything we did, and that included our team culture. So for sure, it solidified then to allow us to be more organized and stand up for more things and have our voices heard and solidified in a new way. So Probably the seed of that came with John. Certainly before that, there was strong voices on the national team that kind of led to, you know, my generation being who we are. We were certainly shaped by the strong women on the team before that. And we're, we're lucky in Canada, our nas- national team is fairly diverse mm-hmm. compared to other national teams in women's soccer, certainly. So I think that's a gift we have, too, that we have a more uh, diverse group of voices to begin with. Absolutely. And I think people take that for granted that the racialized makeup of the team isn't something you're right it's a gift and it's something that offers perspective and there's queer players there's non-binary players there's trans players and I think that's really important as well like I'm I just I think our team is a dream team but I'm biased very biased or am I though um so here's the thing when you were growing up in Oakville um and did you what was it like when you went you went to play in, in, in Division One in the NCAA? Mm-hmm. So was that like your only option or did you consider other things like, can I stay in Canada? Or like, what are possible routes that you had versus now? And what do you want to see more of? Great question. Um, I am less knowledgeable on the routes now. Certainly my route is probably outdated. Um, and my journey was I, I wasn't with any of the national team programs yet. I didn't make any of the youth national teams. So for that reason, I wasn't highly scouted into the U.S. At that time, it was definitely like if you wanted to continue to pursue soccer at a high level, it, the journey for us was definitely pushed down into the U.S. and the NCAA. So I was looking mm-hmm. for schools down there, uh, but I applied to a few schools in Canada as well. I applied to Queens and when 
and got in. And if I, I didn't get into the school I wanted in the U.S., that was kind of my plan. But I applied to a few schools in the U.S. I applied to Notre Dame and they said I could come and try out. But I think I had to pay my way if I went there. So that wasn't an option for me and my parents. Um, and then my parents would only let me go down to the U.S. if it was a good school. Um, so I had known a couple teammates with the provincial program who went down to Princeton a couple years ahead of me. So obviously knew it was a good school. I knew there's a couple Canadians down there I knew. So yeah, I applied and got into Princeton. So I went down there for the soccer and the school. And in terms of the future, I think, I think that ties into that pro league question and hopefully in you know, five, 10 years, whatever the timeline is, we've already had a pro league, it's up and running. I think then we can see a future where our university players or high school players don't have to go down to the US as much. I think there can be pro environments in Canada that they're playing in while perhaps still pursuing education in universities in Canada. Because that's, that's kind of how it works in the rest of the world, right? Like when you're, mm-hmm. when you're good enough, you make a pro team, but they, no one no one else in the world has NCAA rules, so you might as well just play pro, get paid while learning. We could do all those things. I think that would be great. And Canada has such top universities too. It's not like anyone staying in Canada would be hurting for a good education. So I think that that's one of the things the a future pro league can hopefully impact as well. So why do you think we are where we are? We're like a ranked top 10 team and have been for a very long time. Why is Canada in this situation? And it's not just soccer. It's basketball or hockey as well. And arguably, we have the best athletes in the world in women's sports in these these particular categories. Why are we here? Yeah, I don't know all the answers for that. Certainly for soccer, there's maybe something about it not. I mean, it's it's so much more deeply entwined of the cultures in other countries that it was kind of more natural decades ago that they had women's leagues and then eventually they became professional where we didn't have those deeper roots. But yeah, for hockey and other things, that's maybe not the same argument there. Yeah, I don't know. Canada doesn't do a lot of its own leagues. We we go to the US for most of them, right? And we just join, yeah. add franchises to the US. It's not like we have a ton of independent sports leagues going on. So it is maybe a weakness nationally anyways. And then, yeah. No one's got around to building a successful women's league yet. So that's, I mean, that's the exciting part. I think there, it means there's also opportunities that we can build from scratch and build in a way that no one has done before. And we can build with, you know, 20 years plus knowledge of women's sports, of lived experience in clubs and professional environments. And we can, you know, soak in all the knowledge we have across this country and build something really cool from scratch. So it could be actually a really unique and innovative experience. And we could end up with a league that's built for the players and the fans in a way that no one else around the world has done yet. And that could be pretty cool. You heard it here first, Flamethrowers, CEO, DMATH, right here. Um I think that's really important. And I love the part that you're talking about intentionality with which to build these type of structures, because there's so many problems within, whether it's toxic culture, whether it's problems, whether it's lack of transparency financially, these are all really great things that I, you know, I look forward to as well. So you're at Princeton, and that's like such a gentle flex. If I went to Princeton, I'd probably wear a sign. So yay. Um, you asked me specifically about my journey through university. I, know, I feel I, like I had to. You have to. Yeah. You absolutely have to. And it's like, it's an incredible accomplishment. But also, the journey with 
the team and there was shift there was coaching changes just before right like at pivotal moments there was coaching changes like very much like this particular iteration john went to the men's side and bev came on board like that's and that's not too soon before the olympics uh covid19 notwithstanding and the delay so what was that like to manage as a player with that coaching shift so like what's that like from the inside like when john came kind of that close timeline and then when bev has come and in between Kenneth as Heiner Muller took over, like at pretty pivotal moments, there was coaching changes. So like, what's that like to navigate as a player? Yeah, it kind of depends on the coach coming in and how much change they're making. I think certainly since John, the, the core of the team has stayed pretty consistent. So I think we're mm-hmm. able to keep the culture pretty similar throughout. Mm-hmm. And then the, the coach kind of just adds that in different ways, you know, in more tactical, less tactical in louder, quieter ways, like whatever their personality is. But I think, I think hopefully the team's at a point now where they're pretty self-determining to some degree too. I think it's a pretty mature group. I mean, those veteran players have been around the block forever now. And then that middle group has been around the block for tournaments now. Like those, the Kadishas and the Ashleys and the Quinnies and the Jessies, they're medalists already, you know, and they're hungry for gold. So it's not like they're too new either. So I think they're able to keep the culture pretty similar, um, regardless of who the coach is. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So as somebody who was integral in the development and the continuation of this program, when you saw the gold medal win, and if people don't know, Canada won the gold medal <laughs> at the Olympics in women's football, I'm just making sure. Do you think I'm there's anyone listening sure. to your podcast who didn't know that? I just want to make sure they're really clear, I don't Diana. think those are mutually exclusive groups. <laughs> so um, you've contributed to that. Did you get a sense this incredible yes we did it when you were watching because you were watching from home in Toronto oh absolutely yes (laughs) I feel like everyone that watched it and then especially anyone who's been you know at all invested in women's soccer over the last few years or decades it was like oh yeah can you believe it we did it but you actually are some like for me to say that is one thing Diana for you to actually say that is different because you have contributed to these to these events and to the development of this team and considering what happened in 2012 and wanting to, what was that like? Cause like if people also don't know 
there was a roughing call in 2012 in the Olympic uh, in the Olympics against the, the game against the United States, which was what I consider a completely unjust and the most brutal call in the history of officiating in football against Aaron McLeod that she held the ball for seven seconds, which changed the trajectory of the game. Do you think history was was made right, Diana? Oh, there was something so satisfying about this. <laughs> yeah, no, it was such a cool. I think. Canadians really identify with the women's soccer team, I think. And there's just something about, about the way the story has been written, eh? Like the history of 2012 and people remember that game and it hit them in the heart. And then the semifinal this time around and like a bit of retribution. And then on, on top of that, getting the gold, like it was, it was more than just the storyline of like, yeah, we won gold in the Olympics. It was like, oh, this has been coming and we followed them on their journey like I think there's something about that and the the players too kept saying it like they were doing it for sync they were doing it for the older players like Desi and Sof and Aaron mm-hmm. they were doing it for the past players like oh beautiful like I feel like it just tied everyone in can I can I ask you though because I'm obviously going to remember where I was when I watched this one like the, the events that you remember where you were in your life. So do you remember where you were for the U.S. game or for the London game? Absolutely. Where were you? I was sitting in my parents' basement in their old house in Windsor, Ontario, and my children were with me because my children are huge Canadian women's team fans, and they could name the whole rosters. They knew everybody. Like the, My daughter plays at the same club where Diana used to play, so obviously she's like the star for us because familiarity. They knew and we were sitting there in shock. And my brother is actually a qualified referee. And I, he was furious. And the family, there was rage. There was palpable rage and anger and emotion. And my kids were really... And I felt like they have just witnessed their first sporting injustice. And there will be many more. But that was the most pronounced one for me and my daughter in particular. Because my daughter's a goalkeeper. And I think that was a learning moment for her. Because she was she's never held the ball longer than four seconds, possibly ever, because of that. And and then this time, I definitely know where I was when we won gold. But also for me, I was more anxious, I think, about the semi. Uh, no, I was more anxious. I was anxious in the final. But the semi was also rough because it was kind of a fallback. And I'm in a chat group with Meg Linehan, Steph Yang, and Sandra Herrera. And when U.S. advanced, I remember thinking, wait a minute. Are, are, are we playing the Americans? And I went, guys, in the chat group, dot, 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 and nobody replied to me. And I'm like, oh, man, this is <laughs> happening again. And I don't know if I was prepared for that and how I could be. Like, that's when you talk about hit people in the heart, it it hit big. And like, I'm a sports journalist. And I think that when I gather with other colleagues, this is the moment that we talk about a lot, that 2012 game. Do you know what was really cool out of that, um, out of this Olympics too? I feel like there was so many videos of, of, you know, teammates of the Canadians in the NWSL or international players who were like footage of them watching the gold medal game and just celebrating when Canada won. Like, how cool was that? Like everyone, well... To be fair, everyone is probably like, okay, the U.S. has won enough. Like, let's give Canada a turn. <laughs> but also, like, just, it's it's Sink. It's Christine. Like, everyone in women's soccer just knows how good she is. And, like, everyone was just so happy that Canada won for Sink. I wanted to ask you about that, too. Because this, this even Americans, all my American friends were like, 
I mean, it's hard to hate the Swedes because, like, you know, they're so lovely, like, generally. I mean, Hedvig Lindahl is, is an incredible person and a player. Like, we all know that. But, like, I was getting congratulations and, and, and good luck from people I didn't expect to who normally don't. So you are somebody that's been with this program for a while. That U.S.-Canada rivalry, it's not just in hockey. It's very much there in soccer. And these people ended up being your teammates also in NWSL. So what's that like? Do you know what? I feel like it's shifted a bit, to be honest. Well, maybe I'm retired, so I have less of an edge now. (laughs) So you're taking this from a retired player's lens, perhaps. But I feel like it's shifted. Uh, And maybe the same for the hockey as well, Canada-U.S., it's all like it always means everything. It's do or die. We hate losing to them more than anyone else. We want to beat them more than anyone else. And I think 10, 15 years ago, it was like full, full hatred, like end of. Whereas I feel like women's sports is where it's at. There's a little bit of we're all in the same boat and mm. we're all fighting to move the needle. And and mm. again, we we play with half of them too. So we, we know them <laughs> as people. Yeah, like the, the work they've done on that side of the game and moving the conversation forward for women's sports and then the, the backlash they get for that in the U.S. Like we play in the U.S. We're very lucky to be up here. We don't get, we probably get 10% of the, the BS they get thrown at them. And it's, it's incredible. And they do such good work and they get like so much hate for it too. So there's, there's that layer of respect in there too, as a competitor and as people um, that maybe honestly probably wasn't there like 10, 15 years ago. Cause we weren't having those types of conversations as much. So yeah, it's like, it's do or die against us, but like, we'll, if we end up in a bar fight with some of those players against some people who aren't on the side of women's sports, you were fighting with the, we're fighting with the Americans any day. Oh, that, well, that was beautifully put. Um, your experience in the NWSL, and I'm pretty sure you heard about the recent, the story that broke in the Washington Post about uh, Richie Burke. And, you know, what are your, you've been, you were at that club. Like, that's part of your history too. What's that like, even though you're retired now, to see that and to be like damn because that being at Washington is a part of your history with those American players that you know that you talk about something else unfortunately that women's players and non-binary players have to endure is this type of toxicity in sport what was what's that like yeah and in my NWSL career I was with um the spirit the longest that was that was Mm -hmm. kind of my my home team I feel like I had the sense of this one of again like it was one of those reactions, I think, where I think a lot of the players are at that. This is happening again. Like, are we not past this yet? Like, we have to start building a better system of safe sport, um, whatever that looks like. I know we're working on that in Canada, too. Certainly the NWSL has to work on that. And the NWSL is is starting to work closer with the NWSLPA, their Players mm-hmm. Association. So I think a strong collaboration there will help. Because that you you just have to start listening to the players more in all these things, and that the players know it. They they know when things go wrong. They know when you know they can see when something's ahead or like this has happened again and again and again. And you need that feedback, and then you need to start putting the actual structures and systems in place so it doesn't keep happening. It's just too repetitive and too much of a pattern right now. And then I think there's. There's something around transparency too, which I think the NWSL is battling with that they're going to have to figure out. I, 
there's there's a lot of people there trying to improve things. So I think they just got to like sit down and get to work and change it because I think the players are pretty sick of it down there. One of the things was in the reporting, uh, Kaya McCullough was the player that came forward and she had said, and this is a quote from the piece that Molly Hensley Clancy, uh, that Kaya had said, this particular incident and this person made her hate soccer. So when you hear that of a young player, how does that feel for you rather? It, it, it didn't surprise me, to be honest, like them. There's, there's still coaches like that, that exist. And I mean, how many jobs or industries do you work in where your employer or your boss, sorry, is allowed to treat you that way? And that still exists in sports. And I mean, it's the same for any other job. People feel they perform best in situations where they feel valued. They feel psychologically safe. They're challenged and they are treated like people like that's true in any industry and that's true in sports and unfortunately there's still coaches out there who are who haven't caught up to that yet and aren't treating players that way and I, I think it needs there needs to be changes in you know hiring processes and and vetting some of the people getting into sports certainly because it's not like a lot of the people who are um in these incidents, it's their first job, right? Like they've all been around a while. And I think that goes back to, are you actually talking to the players? Because I think probably if you talk to these players in past environments with these coaches, they're all going to say the same thing. It's just that you haven't asked them or you haven't listened. So there's, you got to start improving that. Yeah, I think that's really important and well noted. Can I say too, the, the spirit, the spirit has been really cool to watch though, the changes they've made in the last few years. I like a better stadium, more professional. The the owners there are doing a good job. So hopefully they correct this and keep the team on track. Yeah, definitely. Um, so to to lighten a little bit, because we like to do that after we do heavy stuff and burn it all down, we like to lighten it with fun stuff. In your career, were you ever starstruck when you played against somebody? And if you were, who was that player? Yeah, off the bat. Off the bat in 2003, like Mia Hamm was still playing. And like there was, there was still like half the 99ers were on that team. So anyone from that, yes, absolutely starstruck from that. And I think, um, I mean, the internet was like in a very different state in that time. No social media, obviously. So after the games, I would like go online and I'd try and find any of the game pictures and just save them. Like that was the only way I could find game pics. And there was a few with me and Mia Hamm. Yeah, I still have them on my computer. Do you get recognized and stopped? When you're around and, and when you're home and do people see you and are like, oh my gosh. Is that uh, not too much. Like in soccer circles. Or is that circles, just me? Yeah, in soccer circles, so <laughs> you. Uh, or in Oakville, soccer circles specifically, again, you. <laughs> After 2012, hugely. And then, it, yeah, that changing. So sometimes, do you know who gets recognized all the time because I was hanging out with her during the Olympics is Karina LeBlanc. Like in terms of yeah. recognizability, it's sync is like way, way at the top. And then there's like a drop, but then there's Karina and then there's a big drop and then there's the rest of us. Like people recognize her all the time. They love yeah, her. Yeah, but Karina's also in like sports broadcasting. So that makes yeah. sense. Like she does a lot of the, and I, I so mean, it's I, really funny. Mean, so am I. Yeah, well, you are too. Oh, by the way, I do have to say this because for the 2019 Women's World Cup, Danny, you were injured at that time. You're all women's group with um, Claire Rustad, with Kim Kyle, and with Kate Baroness on TSN. 
uh, yes, shameless plug, was absolutely fantastic. And it was like probably one of the best analytical, like, you know, commentators and punditry that I've ever seen in football. And I watch a lot of it. So I do want to say that. Yeah, no, we had fun. We legitimately had fun. I really enjoyed it. But also it was useful commentary. And I thought it was very important for people to listen to. And it was very much needed. So I hope to see much more of that. But also, um, if you want me to do your PR, I can, if that's what you're saying, because that's what I'm hearing you say. You want me to be like, is that what did I say that made you hear that? (laughs) I'm just just trying to listen back. Yeah, sure. You're in. <laughs> but um, one of the really interesting things about this, and Asinki does not want to, the attention. So it's really interesting that she's one of the most recognizable because she's the one. Can I tell you one? So after <laughs> 2012, so I think beginning of 2013, uh, myself, Rian, St. Karina were like, oh, we got to capitalize this on a bit. We don't make a ton of money. So we went and we did, um, we did formed a company called IS4 and we did some mm-hmm. camps and we were in Halifax doing a camp and we were getting into the minivan, like the guy took us out to a restaurant or something. And Sink was inside the minivan in the back window and a woman was walking by on the street and she saw Sink, like kind of the corner out of eye, turned her head. And then she did like the biggest double take I've ever seen in my life. It was like a cartoon character. I think that woman had whiplash from seeing Christine Sinclair <laughs> and I always remember that. It was crazy. But it's it's really interesting that she really, and watching and covering this team for so long, doesn't love the pressers. She does it because she has to, you know, doesn't want to make it about her, is always talking about the team. And we're like, you're literally the highest goal scorer internationally of all time of any soccer player ever. No, it's about the team. Like, it's just really interesting. Has that remained consistent of her since the beginning, since you've known her? Yeah, she she doesn't love the limelight. She says she doesn't have much interest in it. I think she knows her. She knows the role she plays and that she has to do some of it and that she's she's the face and she knows that and she shoulders a lot of that. She's shouldered a lot of attention over her career. Like she's been the interviews, the face of Canada for, you know, 15 years and the pressure and and all that, but no, Sinky Sinky's not too affected by it like she's still so down to earth humble and still not much interest in in getting her face in front of large groups of people so insider spoiler maybe not spoiler her handing off that pen to jesse fleming is the veritable passing of the torch can we make that assumption it was seemed it seemed symbolic i think um i think there was some circumstance around that penalty that that, mm-hmm. that had her give it to someone else but yeah that worked well didn't it <laughs> I was quite happy with that decision personally. I mean, just that, but it was also, it's also Canadian sports writers really reading into things as we tend to do. But uh, I think there's, there's something beautiful about that. What was your favorite moment of the Olympics? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. It was a bit like London where it was, I kind of like the whole journey, which is cliche. Like when we do well in big tournaments, it's, it's got a storyline and mm. The first few games, we were we were pretty good, but we gave up late game goals, which I mm-hmm. think then served us well later in the tournament because we learned from it. I mean, the Brazilian game, I think you could see the team had shifted and they were they were in a good place. And coming out of the Brazilian PKs, you felt like we had a bit of invincibility to us. And then, of course, the U.S. game. <laughs> I mean, the second half was a bit poor wasn't it but it's fine it wasn't the greatest soccer I've ever seen but I'll take it yeah and you know that game obviously 
I mean, the, the gold medal game was probably just mostly stressful, but yeah, the moments, the moments at the end and the, and the people taking and making penalties like Deanne Rose going upper 90, like, yeah, Julia Grosso, Olympic gold medal, PK. But you know what that's like. Who would have scripted that at the beginning of the Olympics, right? And it was, oh, it was fantastic. I just got goosebumps, but you're somebody that knows what that's like. It was because of you that we got the bronze in 2012. You know what that's like. You know that these moments are like, it's just that your perspective is so authentic here and it's very relevant. Um, if you could pick a team of retired players that you've played with, Who's your your first top three choices? Three? Yeah, get like your. No, team can team. I do a whole team? Yes, please. I didn't want to ask for a, like eleven, including you, but like. Oh, I don't want to offend anyone though. Okay. Um, <laughs> we don't worry about that. Goalkeepers, we're spoiled for choices, aren't we? Okay, we're gonna go Karina in because I want people paying attention to my team and people recognize her. But I got Terrence Wytek <laughs> as my backup. Okay. Okay, CBs. We're gonna go uh, Candace Chapman. Uh -huh. And Randy Hermas. Oh, okay. Randy Hermas, like one of the most solid CBs to play for Canada. Um, we're going to go, oh my God, I'm going to forget. Okay, Rian Wilkinson, fullback. Mm -hmm. I'm going to forget a lot, a ton of people, so. But I, I meant I meant globally retired. Oh, no, like, I'm going to stick with Canadians. I'm, okay, I'm already good. started. Uh, Isabel okay. <laughs> Morneau is going to be my other fullback. In the midfield, we're okay. going to go, I, I'll play. Yes. And we'll go me, Amy Walsh. Because, okay. like, skilled player, but also, like, hard nose, get the tackles in. And then Christina Kiss, she's going to be our distributor, oh, pinging the balls. Okay. Side Playmaker. Just, yeah. Yep. I liked, I liked um, playing with Christina Kiss when I first made the team. And then up front, we'll go Melissa Tancredi. Mm-hmm. And Charmaine Hooper. Yep. Um, and we'll go uh, Savannah Bertini. Done. Okay. That's the starting 11 for my retirement. That was, that was fast and amazing. Um, I love this question, and I'm so happy that you answered it. I answered um, a totally different question than you asked me. You're welcome. Well, no, it's fine. I, I love this also. So if you could play with one player that you never got a chance to across the world in the women's game, who, would you, who did you really want to play with that you didn't get a chance to? Oh, you know what? I would have loved to play, and I'm going to answer with more than one player again I would have loved to play in Seattle the year I was traded to Seattle I did my I tore my ACL like three weeks after Laura Harvey signed me so I missed the whole year and then the team moved to Utah the year after right. and that team well Kim Little had just left so I would yeah. have loved to play with Kim Little but then that team had Jess Fishlock it had Megan Rapinoe like yeah. there were some mm -hmm. great players on the team I would have really enjoyed playing with had I had the chance to play that season Awesome. Friends, you had it right here. As we know her, CEO, future CEO, DMATH, we love her. Canada owes her an incredible debt of gratitude. And if anyone at the Mint is listening, I would love to see her on some currency. Uh, so if that can happen as well, we'd appreciate that. Um, Dana, we love you. Uh, I speak for the whole team and the whole world to say thank you for coming on the show. I'm so excited to continue this excitement. And I promised my co-host I would be as insufferable about our win as possible. Thank you for joining me on that journey. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. You're just saying all those things because you're my PR person. Quite <laughs> possibly. See, I love it's working already. Um, and last, last thing. After 
the game in 2012 when you won, what was the song that you were listening to to celebrate to that squad? Oh, we for sure had Celine Dion in when we got back in, yeah. (laughs) I heard a rumor, but I just wanted you to confirm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we had it. It was it was it was later like it was maybe like 40 minutes later by the time everyone got drug tested and and back in and I think even like this the can of soccer higher ups were in and like belting it out too it was great was that my heart will go on no power of love power of love yeah of course amazing Thank you for that and for answering all the hard-hitting journalistic questions I had today. And you are welcome here anytime. Thanks for having me.